So I ask you to take the Word of God and turn to Hebrews 6, please. At the end of your aisles, you will also have some of these papers. These papers were put together in landscape style in order to take a passage of Scripture that people have found beyond difficult. And the reason is, is because we're trying to understand better about what the Bible means by repentance. You come into a lot of friction when you're trying to get definitions from other sources behind the Word of God. I think the Bible has enough where it can speak for itself. But it doesn't change the fact that there are some passages that are incredibly difficult to deal with. And Hebrews 6 verses 1 through 8 is one of them. Now that's just a small unit. And this little unit that we've been focused on for so long is called the branch. That's what I'm calling it right now because we're looking closely at a passage. We're trying to examine every little fine detail of it. We're observing and observing and coming back to it again and again, asking for the Holy Spirit to show us new things if that's what needs to happen, to bring some things to the surface that maybe we didn't see it the first 540 times that we read it. Sometimes 541 makes all the difference. But it's the idea of asking for the Spirit to show us what we need to know about this. And what we've looked at is we've discussed what the book of Hebrews is about. We've called that the trees. And we've also talked a little bit more about how that fits, or I'm sorry, the context of it, that we're calling that the trees. And what the entire book of Hebrews is about, we're calling that the forest. What did the entire author have in mind when he wrote this book? And how can we understand this passage in there? Well, one thing we're going to be looking at today is called the expanse. And that is, how does the Word of God help us? How does the Word of God speak to this particular situation. Now, do me a favor real quick. Raise your hand if you've come across this and you found this passage difficult. That's it? Okay. I'm scared to ask, raise your hand if you didn't read any of this passage at all over the past couple of weeks. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look over this passage. Here we go. Look at verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, <clears throat> and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. That's a really big clincher for this. Why would God not permit this? Notice he gives you an example. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Does everybody see that there's five things there? If you don't have them marked, you need to mark them. One, two, three, four, five, or A, B, C, D, E, I don't care. But those are the ones you need to look at because those are the qualities of the person that they are talking about in this situation. Why would God not let a Christian go on to maturity? Well, here are the things that would happen in that growth maturing process. But then there's a problem, verse 6. And then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Then He gives an illustration. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful for those whose sake it is tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. Pretty graphic. In fact, some of you have probably participated in the burning of a field at some point. Why do you do that? Why would you take a plot of land that you've been planting and harvesting for quite a while and then end up setting it on fire? Just because it's fun? For what? 
to clear it off. Why? What's the problem? It what? Because of weeds? Because of renewal? Because of the fact it's probably used up all the possible nutrients that it can and it needs to get a do-over. That might be the situation. Now here's the problem with this. We read this passage and it causes us to be immediately introspective. As it probably should. Where am I standing with the Lord? Have I had a situation in my life where I've fallen away? And it makes us a little antsy about our walk with Christ. That's a good thing. They're not called the warning passages in Hebrews for no reason. You warn believers about the lake of fire. You don't warn them about the possibility of discipline from the Father. So it's two different things that we're dealing with here. But the great thing about it is, is that Scripture actually interprets Scripture. We don't need to waffle sideways and to and fro and worry about this because God has already unfolded for us a very grand picture of exactly what the author of Hebrews is talking about. Now, we are going to go on a pretty big journey here. So I need you to stick with me. If it's a little fast, I encourage you to listen to the audio later. If there's something you don't understand, raise your hand so that we can answer the question. But I probably won't take too long on the question or I'll ask you to email me so I can answer it in a way out of this so that we can get through this information. But I want you to see the beauty of the fact that Scripture can interpret Scripture. So to start this, let's turn over to Romans chapter 15 because Paul tells us something there in verse 4 that is absolutely profound that we need to pay close attention to. Romans chapter 15, looking at verse 4. There's nothing more beautiful than the sound in the body of Christ of rustling pages. He's talking about bearing with our weaker brothers and sisters in Christ with patience. He gives the idea of Christ bearing out in weaknesses because of how he was reproached. And then he brings a very profound comment. What word does verse 4 start with in chapter 15? Four. So he's going to give you an explanation of this. Watch what he says. Whatever was written in earlier times. Okay, time out. Paul probably wrote this around 62, 64 AD. What's he talking about here? What was written in earlier times? It's called the Old Testament. Okay, now watch this. What was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Why? So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have what? Hope. We might have hope. Now think about what he said here. Through perseverance and encouragement. Hard times and good times, they would both give way to the idea of hope. What is the case situation in Hebrews 6, 4, and 5? They'd experienced all this amazing growth, and then in verse 6, they fall away. Is that perseverance? It is not. And so God has so set up the Old Testament in order to instruct us now as part of the church dispensation on how we should understand in living our lives because what happened to Israel in the Old Testament as historical, physical, real events actually was God laying forward a picture for you and I and how we grow or don't grow as believers in Jesus Christ. This is exactly what we see. So I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to have this paper to your side, and in particularly verses 4 and 5, so that we can look at these five things about growth that happens. Because we need to check what they're saying in the New Testament with the events that are unfolding in the Old Testament. And then I'm going to ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. 
I know I'm asking a lot. Praise the Lord, we got two hands, right? Just don't try to put one eye on each paper, okay? Exodus 4, if you're familiar with this situation, the children of Israel are in slavery. <coughs> Excuse me. Yahweh appears in the form of a burning bush that is not consumed. And he calls Moses, who's been herding sheep for 40 years, out in the middle of nowhere. And he puts a call on his life. And if you remember, Moses tries to weasel five times in order to get out of this calling, right? I know that doesn't resonate with anyone, okay? But that's what he seeks to do. So I want to start in verse 29. I'm just hitting the Cliff Notes versions of this because I want you to see what takes place. Look at verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron went, and they assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which Yahweh had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. Now watch this, verse 31. So the people what? The people believed. Pay attention to that. And when they had heard that Yahweh was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction because they'd probably come under the, the misconception that he had forgotten about them. Getting messed up in who God is. Well, God forgot about us. God doesn't forget anything. He's omniscient. So watch this. They'd seen their affliction. Then they bowed low and they did what? Worship. They believed. They took under consideration the word of God. They bowed themselves low and they ended up worshiping. Now, if you notice over in verse 4 of Hebrews 6, it says, in the case of those who have once been what? Enlightened. That means that God made the effort to come to you. God made the effort to open your eyes to greater things. Let's see another example of what God was doing to enlighten in this. Move forward to verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 14. Look at Exodus 14. This is on the other side of the plagues that took place. They got to see all of these plagues unfolded. If you were here for the foundational framework series, you know that we went through every one of these days for the plagues because it wasn't just God saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. It was taking all the false gods that Egypt worshipped at that time and completely turning them over and brushing them away and saying, there is no God but Yahweh, the creator of all things, showing himself to be infinitely more powerful than whatever it was that they chose to worship. Look at chapter 14, verse 11. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Translation, thanks a lot, Moses. Now what's the situation? They've been set free. The angel of death passed over, killed the firstborn. Pharaoh said, enough, get out of here. Let them go. They travel out. They come so far, and then Pharaoh says, what in the world have I done? Everybody, quick, mount up. And let's go. We're going to get them back. That's all of our workforce. If not, we're going to have to work for ourselves. And we don't want that. So let's go get them. So they're traveling after. They see them coming. They're standing here with the sea in front of them. They're like, this isn't good. Thanks a lot, Moses. We're going to die. Notice it says, why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a godless remark. Okay? Now, I love Moses' response. I love it. Verse 13, but Moses said to the people, Do not what? Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will accomplish for you today. 
for the Egyptians, what you have seen today, you will never see them again forever, right? He gives the never ever in the Hebrew. The never ever ever. You will never see them again and forever. And I love it, verse 14. Yahweh will fight for you while you keep silent. I think that was probably the biggest struggle for the Israelites, right? But this is another way that God is enlightening them. Now remember, in chapter 6 of Hebrews, we're talking about a Christian growing. So what we're talking about here in the Old Testament is a picture is people who are already in this covenant relationship with Yahweh. How was that possible? Well, we know for sure because they applied the blood and death passed over. Anybody ever put that together would think that's exactly how your salvation was done? A lamb was killed. When we believe in Christ, we put, apply the blood and death passes over us. God set it all up so we wouldn't get salvation wrong. There's so many do today. In this situation, he wants to show us something amazing. He takes the time, even in our complaining, even in our grumbling, even in our, well, what are you doing now, God? This seems terrible. And we just, meh, 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 all the time. And God is such a patient father with us. And he says, let me show you this. And he sends somebody else into our lives to say, but, but wait on the Lord. Watch this. But, but you don't understand everything he's going to do. Be patient here and see what he does. And I tell you what, does anybody know what happens after the sea comes together and takes care of Pharaoh and his army? What do they do? They what? They worship. They worship God. Think about how crazy that is. God, thank you for killing our enemies. We praise you. Everybody's like, oh, that wouldn't work today. Is that because of the world or is that because of God? You know? Thank you, Lord, for smiting our enemies and getting them out of the way. You have truly delivered us into an amazing way. Wow, you were so powerful in how you worked here. When God shows these instances of illumination, it's to elicit worship out of us. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't care what it is. If God's going to take the time to reveal himself and seek to call you into a deeper understanding of him by enlightening us, then praise the Lord for that. He's desiring to work with us. Why would we not want to be reciprocal in that matter? So, the idea of being enlightened by God, there's two good instances that shows us in the Old Testament. Now, the next one. Turn over to chapter 16. If you notice, the next thing you have in verse 4 is, have tasted of the heavenly gift. That word was used on purpose because it wants to show us a word picture. Look at chapter 16, verse 8. Moses said, this will happen when Yahweh gives you meat to eat in the evening. And bread, which was actually manna, that's what it is, okay? Manna, what is it from heaven? To the full in the morning. For Yahweh hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. See, that's a great thing. He hears it. It's amazing he hasn't said anything yet, but he hears it, okay? And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but they're against Yahweh. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to all the congregation, the sons of Israel, come near before Yahweh. For he's heard your grumblings. And it came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, now watch this, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, I've heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them saying, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread and you shall know. Now watch this. That's intentional. You shall know that I am Yahweh your Elohim. In other words, by demonstrating these things and showing you how I can be your provider, I'm eliminating doubts piece by piece. Now, why would he do that? Because when he's taking people into a growth relationship and he wants to lay a foundation for us to walk on, 
He knows that greater things are going to come up in the future. So he's slowly holding our hands and bringing us into an understanding of comfort and expectation of how God works and who he is so that when the big things start to come up, we're not discouraged and, oh my gosh, why would you just kill me now, God? This is ridiculous. You remain steadfast and you wait on the Lord and you watch him provide in this situation. So it's no coincidence that he says here, you have tasted the heavenly gift, symbolizing how he brings us deeper in our relationship with him, cultivating fellowship. Now let's look at the next one here. We're going to go to chapter 35. I actually had four different verses for this, but for the, for the interest of time, I'm only choosing one. You can find other instances. If you want those, you can get with me afterwards. I gladly give them to you. We're going to go to chapter 35 of Exodus. Because our next one on our list in verse 4 of Hebrews 6 is, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. How have we been made partakers of the Holy Spirit? Notice it's not just the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's something deeper. It uses the word metakoi in the Greek. It's the idea of becoming companions with or having a share in something. Well, this is talking about a deeper growth understanding. Chapter 35 here, look at verse 30. It says, Then Moses said to the sons of Israel, See, Yahweh has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. Now watch this. Verse 31, He has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all craftsmanship to make designs for working in gold and in silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood so as to perform in every inventive work. How in the world did this guy get a supernatural, this old house going on here? I mean, is this guy the first Bob Vila or what? What's going on? Well, notice what it is. Every, and this is the part we don't read up to 35. Usually for after chapter 20, 22, 23 of Exodus, we got our Bible plan, we're reading through, and we're like, man, there's a lot of stuff going on here. I don't even know how to put it together. I think I'll skip until this part. What we miss is, is all of this precise, exact instructions of what it is to build the tabernacle. Why? Because God wants them to set up a replica on earth of things that are already a reality in heaven. And he wants to show them what it looks like to have sacrifice and worship and to praise the name of Yahweh on earth as it's done in heaven. So everything has got to be perfect. And he knows no one can accomplish this perfectly. So what does he do? He gives this guy the Holy Spirit resting upon him in order to enhance all of his abilities as he stands as the foreman to instruct all of this situation. And every little piece is done as the Spirit of God would enable him to do so. Everybody who participates in the tabernacle worship is participating in the previous work of the Holy Spirit and setting all this stuff up. If you want the other instances of this, I can give them to you. Chapter 28, verses 2 and 3. If you want to write them down. Chapter 28, 2 and 3. Chapter 31, verses 1 through 5. Chapter 31, verses 1 through 5. And then chapter 36, verse 1. You see, the Holy Spirit is actually placed upon people to give them a supernatural ability they never had. It's not like this guy didn't know anything. He was a craftsman of a sort. But he needed to be divinely endowed in order to do God's perfect work. Now let's move on to the next one. Turn back to chapter 20. Exodus 20. If you're familiar with Exodus 20, you know that this is the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, at the base of the mountain. That all the people were told to stand off from the mountain, to not touch it, and they actually heard God speak audibly. If you would have had a tape recorder at that time, you could have pressed record 
and gotten his voice on tape. Nobody uses tape recorders anymore. Some of you guys don't even know what I'm talking about. If you set up a microphone with your MP3 player, you could have hit record. I don't know. Garage band, the whole thing, whatever. Some of you are like, what's that? Uh, there's not a happy medium there. But here's what I want you to see in chapter 6 of Hebrews, verse 5, and have tasted the good word of God. Come into the deeper things of God's word. In other words, you're coming into where you actually reverence God's word to have obedience. Yes. We are on Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 18, 19, and 20 and how this corresponds with what's going on in Hebrews 6, verse 5. Does that make sense? Okay. So, in Hebrews 6, verse 5, part of the growth that he gives there, the D section or the number 4 section that I asked you to number or label, is tasted the good word of God, coming into that growth of actually obeying God's word because it is the best option. You're convinced of that. Notice it says here in verse 18, after the law was given, you shall not murder, you shall not commit, all of those things. God audibly speaks. Look at chapter 20, verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet. Where in the world did that trumpet come from? Good grief. And the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not Elohim speak to us or we will die. That's a heck of a conclusion because he just did it and you're still alive. But notice his voice caused such insane emotions in them. I mean, imagine hearing the voice of God for the first time speak to you. And not just speak to you. He's on the mountain speaking down to you. I don't know if we want to pitch to Charlton Heston out there in the middle of nowhere or what. But whatever it takes to get this idea, these people are scared to death. But Moses tells us something incredibly interesting. Remember, these are already people who are in relationship with Yahweh. He's already redeemed them, okay? Watch this. Verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. There's that fear not part again. For God has come in order to what? Test you. You might want to mark that. You might want to mark that. Why is it that we're brought into deeper understanding of the Word of God so that we will take the knowledge that we have been learning and embracing and apply it to our situation? God is trying to grow us forward. He's trying to move us onward and upward. He doesn't, no Christian left behind. That's God's divine program. Some of you think that's funny. Moving on. Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you. And in order that the fear of Him may remain with you. Why? So that you may not sin. So that you would choose truth over lies and you would recognize that God's word is paramount to whatever thinking that you would possibly come to of saying, well, I think it ought to be this way. Guess what? God doesn't care. He does not care. His idea is to bring us into greater depths of his word. Not say, well, God, I think I want to go here. God's not interested in taking you where you want to go. He's very much interested in taking us where he wants to go. He already has a plan set out for us. So this would be an example of what it is to be tasting of the good word of God. Why? Because it's given to us in order to test us. He doesn't want us to sin. And he's giving us a much better way to handle life. You don't have to sin. We just have to trust his word. When we sin, it's because of unbelief and not knowing or trusting his word. That's the problem. So moving us deeper into that. Now, here's the one that's a little bit different. Because if you would, turn with me to Numbers 13. We move forward in time. Very significant time. Numbers chapter 13. <clears throat> because in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 5, it says, and of the powers of the age to come. 
Now it goes back to the verb that's being used, tasted, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. What does the future look like? And when you bring somebody who's a believer of Christ into greater growth in their Christian walk, they begin to have a craving for the end. They begin to have a craving for what's going to happen. They they begin having hope of what to look for. Isn't that what Paul told us? The idea that it's to bring encouragement so that it would give way to hope? To make us a hopeful people. That's why we study the Old Testament. So notice, the power of the ages to come. Here's the setup. They come to the east end of the Jordan River where they could cross over into the land of Canaan. The first generation of the children of Israel are ready to go in and to take the land. God has them there for the moment. They are being tested in this moment. Oh my gosh, does God test us? Yes, He does. He has no problem with it. Because he wants his kids to succeed because he's given us everything to succeed. We're not lacking in anything. Especially now that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Good googly. We should be accomplishing this no problem. Knowing his word, believing his word. It's that simple. It really is. So he brings them to this point. They can look out and they can see it. Here is what is to come for the future of Israel. So he says, hey everybody, let's put together some spies. Take one who is the head of each of the tribes. We're going to put together 12 spies. We're going to send them over. I want you to check out what's going on. Let us know how it's going. Is it indeed as God has said that this future age, this future time for them is as good as he said it was? Well, let's take a look at it for ourselves. Look at verse 23, chapter 13 of Numbers 23. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because the cluster which the sons of Israel cut down from there. And when they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, And it certainly does flow with milk and honey. This is its fruit. In other words, we went out, we came back with this. It's exactly what God said. It is a land flowing with milk and honey indeed. We could set up shop there and never want for anything. God has prepared this land. He's called us to this. Wow, it's fantastic. This is what the end looks like. We're awaiting the rapture right now. We know that we don't ever have to worry about tribulation time. You think it's bad now, it's going to get nothing but insanely worse. We are rescued from all of that stuff, and we're going to be in glory with Him. That is the hope. That is tasting of the age to come. That's what we look forward to. Notice here, you have evidence of what is to come. Now here's the sad part. Verse 28. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and are very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak. Now here's the thing. There's not one thing they've told so far that's a lie. The descendants of Anak are giants. Large people. Goliath of Gath came through that situation. Think of the Nephilim in Genesis 6. We get all weirded out about that. But that's what came about that. The mighty men of renown. They were gigantic, enormous offspring. Google it. Look for pictures. You can actually find stuff on it. It's real. It happened. Okay? Now watch this. He says here, verse 29, Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and the side of Jordan. I don't know about you, but they're able to make a military plan from this. 
to set up a map. Okay, here's where we go. Here's what we do. Here's who's there. Here's how we take them out. How many people you think they had? Great. Here we go. Sounds like a good thing. But then he moves, verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people. You know why? I'm going to guess from the context of Israel that there was some grumbling and complaining going on, okay? Just let's go on a hunch here, okay? Caleb quieted the people before Moses and he said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it for we will surely overcome it. And somebody said, Caleb, what in the world is wrong with you? Sit down. Is that how that should be done? What happened to Caleb? Why is he different? Why? Because he trusted God. God said, here's what you're going to do. Caleb said, okay, great. Let's go. Why are we still talking? If God said we can do it, can we do it? We can totally do it. Because it's all about him giving the victory anyway. about anything we do. It's about trusting him to do it. Now watch how this moves forward. Verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, the ten other spies, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave to the sons of Israel a bad report. Everybody see that? They gave to the sons of Israel what? A bad report. Were there good things there? Absolutely. But notice, by putting something of the right now in front of them that pointed them in a bad direction, it overshadowed the future of what's going on with the promises of God. Purposely manipulating the situation to lead people astray from what God had said. That's a big, big problem. So, but the men who had gone up with them said, we're too strong, not able to go up against the people. They are too strong for us. Can you imagine the fear that came about them immediately? Especially when they brought up the name Anak. Everybody knew what that was. They're bigger. They're stronger. Oh my gosh, they might crush us with rocks. So they start to, just like we all do sometimes in our Christian life, flip out. They start to lose it. They start to lose sight. Now look down at chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people went, wept that night. And the sons of Israel, what? Thank you, Moses. Thank you for leading us to a place where we can trust the Lord in a major way. Is that what they were saying? No. Let's see what they said. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Anybody heard that before? It's like a rerun, okay? Or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's amazing that Yahweh doesn't take personal offense to the attack of his character. God let us out here so that people could cut us in half? Does that sound like God? No. In fact, I haven't known one place where he's led somebody where he said, well, that's all I'm doing. Later. Never happened. He never said, you got it from here. He never said, continue on without me. That never happened. He said, I will open the door for you. I will hold your hand. And if you will hold mine, I will lead you all the way to the end of the finish line completely. So that's not the situation that we're dealing with here. But notice how they question his character. Here's the complaint. Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Is there anything wrong with being worried about family? Not a thing. That's your first ministry. You should be worried about your family. Absolutely. You should be concerned for their well-being. But notice they use this as an excuse not to go. They said, would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Why not go back and just make amends with everyone? Wait, wait a second. Nobody was ruling there now. And if you recall correctly, the sea swallowed up everybody else. What are you going back to? 
Everybody remember the one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy? Everybody remember that? It's the same concept that Jesus taught on. Why don't we go back? Now here's the killer. Look at verse 4. So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Anybody know why that's a problem? Who was the leader? Moses. Who appointed Moses? God. We hate to tell you, but you got it wrong. We've been meaning to have this talk for some time, but this guy doesn't have a clue what's going on. He's just not doing what we think we ought to do. He's got to go. I'm sorry. You know what? We're going to sit him aside. We've been looking at Schmitty for a while. We think he's ready. And Schmitty's going to do what we want him to do, so we really, really like him. Sometimes that's how people choose pastors for churches. He sins in the same way we do. He's great. You know? Let's get him in here because we won't talk about those things. Yeah, thanks, Schmitty. Exactly. That's why Jane and I get along. We're the same person. He's got a much cooler beard than I do, though. So, let's appoint somebody else. Moses got it wrong. God got it wrong. No good. Let's get this. Let's overthrow God's anointed and go a different way. For you sacrifice to yourself again. You crucify again the Son of God and put him to open shame. Does everybody see the parallels here? Jesus wasn't enough. We got to do something else. So I'm going to fall away from this growth relationship because either the sin is more important to me or he's just not working out how I think it ought to go. And because of my unbelief and doubt of the word of God, even though that he showed me so I would know better, I think I'm going to push this away and look for someone else to take the throne. Gosh, this is a huge sin. It's an amazing sin. Now watch how this moves forward. Look at verse 11, chapter 14, verse 11. Yahweh said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I perform in their midst? What were the purpose of the signs? To bring them into greater trust. To bring them into greater belief. Why does God take the time to work intimately in your life? To bring you into greater understandings of himself. So that you will continue to hold his hand in the hard times. And not let go. We miss out on so much blessing when we let go. Notice the next part here. Turn Go, go down to uh, verse 17. This is Moses praying. He's interceding on behalf of the people. But now I pray, let the power of Adonai, notice he invokes that name. It means master. Adonai, be great just as you have declared. Yahweh is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, not because they deserve it, all because of who God is. Just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Now watch how Yahweh responds to this. So Yahweh said, I have pardoned them according to your word. Notice this. He forgives their sin, but there are still consequences. The sin no longer stands between them. But there are still consequences for making this action. Verse 21, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of Yahweh. 22, surely all men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not. What's the word? Husbands, pay attention. Your wives want you to know this word. It's way more important that you listen to the, to the word of God than them, but they want you to listen to them too. Have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. 
What is the consequence for the sin and not going into conquer? You will not inherit the land. Notice he doesn't say, you're no longer my people. I'm going to cut you off here. You guys have a good time. I'm done with you. He doesn't do this. He still maintains relationship with them. But as far as the blessed destiny that they had for that generation, they've now forfeited those blessings and opportunities because of their unbelief. It's not a possibility for them anymore. Now, here's what's great. There's an exception. There's an exception to this situation. Look at verse 24. But my servant Caleb, everybody remember him? Back in 1330, Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me, how? Oh man, there's the difference. What has God said? That's what I'm going to do, period. End of the issue. Because he's followed me fully. I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants shall take possession of it. You know what that means? Not everybody who Yahweh was in relationship with in Israel died in the wilderness. Those who were faithful in this test and trusted his word regardless of the present circumstances got to go in and inherit. Now he was old. He had to bear for 40 years with everybody else who died off during that time. But he still got to inherit the blessing that God had prepared. In fact, when they get in, Joshua says to him, Caleb, pick any of the land that you want. It's yours. Gives him free pickings. That's a southern term. But anytime somebody gives you free pickings, that's a good thing because it means whatever you want, take it. Why? Because you trusted God when it mattered. You trusted God when it was hard. How about this? Look at chapter 14 down at verse 39. Because here's the part that messes us up in Hebrews 6. If they've fallen away again, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. That messes us up. How do we handle that? Well, let's watch and see because the Bible shows us. Verse 39. When Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, letting them know what God was going to do now, they mourned greatly. It all wasn't worth it at that moment, was it? Unbelief didn't have the weight it once did before the situation when God said, here are the consequences for your disobedience. Look what he says here, verse 40. In the morning, however, uh uh-oh, pay attention, okay? In the morning, however, they rose up early and went up into the ridge of the hill country saying, here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which Yahweh has promised. You know know what they're saying? We're going to go. We had a momentary lapse of reason. We apologize for that. Now we're heading off. Let's cross the river. Let's go. Let's get these people. Yeah. God's with us. Verse 41. But Moses said, why then are you transgressing the commandments of Yahweh when it will not succeed? You can't do that. Do not go up or you will be struck down before your enemies. For Yahweh is not among you. Because if you're going to give victory, only God's going to give it. They're like, you know what? We messed up. We really don't like the sound of those consequences they're going to have. So we're going to double back and try to make things right. Trying to earn it on their own. You cannot do that. You cannot. Verse 43, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you. You will fall by the sword. And as much as you have turned back from following Yahweh, and Yahweh will not be with you. But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country. Neither the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh nor Moses left the camp. We're going up godless. This is going to work out great. Verse 45. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. Now here's an interesting thing. 
Did Israel repent? They did. So why in the world can we look at something like Hebrews 6, 6 and say it is impossible to renew them again to repentance? Let me ask you a question. Who didn't repent as far as the situation with Israel? God. God would not change his mind. God would not say, you know what, yeah, sorry guys. And here's how we normally picture it. Let's give some grace. That's an abusing of grace. It doesn't really make the generous merited favor of God exactly what it is. It's saying that your sin ultimately doesn't matter. Your high treason against God wasn't that big of a deal. No, no, no. God takes that stuff very seriously. And he refuses to change his mind about that situation. In fact, I found an incredible statistic. 46 times in the Old Testament, the word repent or its variants are used. 28 times is God using it. Of him using it of himself, that he repented, that he repented from something. Only nine times are human beings in the Old Testament repenting. And the other nine times is when Yahweh is saying, I will not repent about this. I will not change my mind on this issue. God does more repenting in the Old Testament than people do. But in this situation right here, he will not change his mind. What is this saying for us in Hebrews 6? He's saying that if God has taken, if you have the case where a believer in Christ has been led into a growth relationship and all of these amazing things have been done to enlighten them and cause them to be partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the Word of God and the age to come and they're growing and they're growing and they're growing and they come to this opportunity to trust the Lord fully as Caleb did and to back away and say it's impossible, it's not worth it, God can't do it, let's appoint somebody else, let's get this Christ out of here because there's a greater Savior. He says it's impossible for you to come back in this situation. Why is that? It's not that you don't want to. Of course, we can repent all we want. But guess what? Those blessings that he had prepared beforehand, they're not there anymore. He'll have other blessings for you. You say, good grief, where is the grace in this? I'm glad you asked. Turn to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 29. Look how he cares for them because he causes them to walk in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation, everybody who's 20 and older, dies because of their high treason against him. You say, well, that sounds really terrible and hopeless. What in the world's going on? Well, Deuteronomy 29, look at verses 2 through 6. It says, and Moses summoned all Israel. Now, this is the second generation coming up, ready to take the promised land, succeeding in a way that their forefathers had failed. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you've seen all that Yahweh did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. Remember what God's done for you in the past. Don't forget it. Because that's what's going to carry you moving into the future. He says here, the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs of wonder. Yet to this day, Yahweh has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. In other words, to move in and experience those things, they didn't fully comprehend the magnitude of what was going on with it yet. Look at verse 5. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Now stop for a second. Anybody here ever wandered around the desert for any amount of time? We, you know that just laying around the house, your clothes wear out, right? Notice, you never had to get new garments. For 40 years, Yahweh supernaturally sustained your covering. Look what else he says here. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandal is not worn out on your foot. Good grief, can you think what it is to trounce around the desert in Old Testament sandals? They never wore out. Nobody was like, where's a footlocker? We got to get something different. That never happened. They always had it. There's the grace of the Lord. You have not eaten bread 
nor have you drunk wine or strong drink. Now, bread there is not the idea of manna. He's saying you may not have had the most pristine or prestigious of food available to you in order that you might know that I am Yahweh your God. Why? Because he provided the meat. He provided the manna. He provided the water out of the rock. Does everybody remember that? Moses struck the rock and water came out in order to, 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 to satisfy everybody. Everybody remember this? It's not that God wasn't ungracious after their disbelief. He's still the gracious and loving God that he is. But if we come to a point in unbelief where we want to overthrow the Savior in this situation, those profound blessings of greater understanding that he had for us out ahead are now set aside for lesser ones. To finish up, look at 1 Corinthians 6. This isn't the only place we're told about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Is it 1 Corinthians? No, I'm sorry. Chapter 10, verse 6. Forgive me. Paul speaks about the wilderness wanderings. He speaks about God appearing in the cloud. Cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. The idea of what it was to go through the Red Sea. And he likens all these things to the Christian life. And he says in verse 6, Now these things happened as examples. The word there is tupos. And it's the idea of a type. And something that we need to pay attention to and be very very careful with when you're interpreting the Bible, something called typology. And that is New Testament spiritual realities being unfolded for us in Old Testament actual historical events. God's Word is perfect. He set it up for us. So it says here, these things happen, these Old Testament things happen as types for us. Why? So that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. In other words, it's to warn you that sin isn't worth it. Here's an example of people who didn't trust God before. Don't make that mistake. In fact, that's the definition of wisdom. If you can find someone who's messed it up before, don't do it. Let me give you a great example. David and Bathsheba. Did that work out well? Be faithful to your wife. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Don't commit adultery. Well, you, But you don't know what I'm going through. I don't care. Look at David. Look at the situation with Bathsheba. It's bad and wrong. Don't sin. Trust regardless of the situation. Hold fast regardless of the situation. God has already told you so that we are a people without excuse. Now here's an interesting thing. If you want an interesting study to do over the next couple of weeks, look at verses 7, 8, 9, 10. He goes through and he gives something that's wrong and he quotes a little bit of the Old Testament. And each one of those events are major mess-ups on the part of Israel in not following God fully. Go through. Look at all those Old Testament events. Check out what's going on and how they messed it up. And realize that the whole reason why God allowed those things to be recorded in the Scripture was to help us stay away from sin. And then look how he caps this off in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. Same word as a type. And they are written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. In other words, because we live in the last time, we should very much more urgently understand that sin is not worth it and the Savior is all glorious. In Him alone are all the answers. He alone has given us the Word of God. He alone has taken the author of this book and decided to put it right here so we would never have issue. Hard times? Yes. Trials? Yes. But just as Dr. Lamb talked about last week, this is when you look at it, you go, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Why is it? Because God's doing something and he's saying, look at my word. 
and apply it to this situation. It's for you. Look at the Old Testament. Study the Old Testament. It's just as important as the New, and it's just as inspired as the New. Some of us don't know that. It's equally God's Word. Know it. Embrace it. Recognize how God works and who He is. And let that renew your mind so that whatever comes, you are clinging to Him like a life raft. God never promised the idea of it being easy. Not one time. He did always promise He would always tell us the truth. There's not one thing that we're lacking in Christ. Not one. He's given it all for us. So let's commit ourselves to the Word of God and it alone is an answer to every, every situation. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You for the completeness of the Word of God. Thank You that it is perfect. Thank You, God, that it is able to encourage us in hard times that it is able to give light in dark situations, that it is able to overcome the hard heart, that it is able to supply joy for people who mourn and give comfort for those who are helpless. Thank you, Lord, that even in the Old Testament, all these things are listed out in order to give us hope. Lord, we live in the last days. Your word's really clear. We are in the last days now. And how important it is for our responsibility in being humbly devoted to your word and embracing it for everything that it's worth, knowing it, having it fill our minds and run out of us like water for every problem, situation, celebration, doesn't matter what it is, that we would cling fast to the word of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. That you have loved us and graced us so much and you have warned us you want the greater blessings for us. You've given us everything to walk into those broad pastures. Lord, help our unbelief. When we think about appointing another leader and going back to Egypt, Lord, rebuke us, please. And help us to remember there is a greater way that's already established in the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us so much. And it's in his name we pray it. Amen.